Hey everyone, it's your host of See Jurassic Right, Stephen Ray Morris here, just dropping in to say, I hope you've been enjoying all the new episodes in 2023 and 2024 so far. There are new interviews with filmmakers, musicians, scientists, the screenwriter of Land Before Time, audio essays about the rich history of the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World franchise, and all the news about the upcoming animated show Jurassic World Chaos Theory and the as-of-yet untitled Jurassic World sequel coming next summer. I really need your help supporting the show right now, and you can do that by leaving a tip and or giving a monthly follow on Patreon, patreon.com slash There are $1 and $5 tiers, but more is coming. Sharing the show, giving five-star reviews in Apple Podcasts, and liking and commenting on social, at Stephen Ray Morris on Instagram and Twitter, goes a long way to help boosting the show's visibility again online in this new era. I'm an independent podcaster and your support is so important and means the world to me in keeping this podcast running. Link to the Patreon is in the show notes. Hold on to your butts. Thank you. And now on to the show. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Filled with odd fright, see Jurassic right, bathed in ember light, see Jurassic right, see Jurassic right, 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 see Jurassic right, 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 see Jurassic right, 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 see Jurassic right, see Jurassic right, see Jurassic Park. I never, I never know how to do intros, but other than just say what, who my guest is and what their, you know, what their work and what they're involved with. And she's the host of PBS's Eons. She's the collections manager of the University of Montana Paleontology Center. It's paleontologist Callie Moore. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me. This is super exciting. I'm such a huge fan of Eons and so grateful you wanted to talk to me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. And I'm a huge fan of Sea Jurassic Right. So Oh my gosh, this is this is I'm my mind is still blown. I'm <laughs> like, oh no, people are actually listening to this. No. Yeah, I, I get shocked every time like we upload a video and I'm like, you know, I don't know how well this one's gonna do. How how are people really gonna like this episode on of whatever we post? You know, fermentation. That seems a really <laughs> oddball thing. And then it just like explodes. And I'm like, oh, people 
people like this. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, we all we all have that tinge of like, are people gonna like the thing we do? No matter no matter who you are in life, we all we all have that. So if you have that, it's okay. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um. Cool. Well, I mean, truly, the the first question I have to ask is, and you've mentioned on social media that Jurassic Park has uh, inspired you. Um, to become a paleontologist. And I guess I just have to ask, what was it like the first time you saw the film? Oh, man, it was so cool. It was kind of scary. I was um, a big sissy when I was a kid. I couldn't handle scary movies. So I probably like hid my face a lot. I'm trying to remember. I was in third or fourth third or fourth grade when the Jurassic Park, the original came out. And so I was already into dinosaurs before that. And then seeing it, I was like, oh, I'm kind of glad they're dead. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bones are much safer than the real thing. OK. Uh, but it kind of solidified it. You know, it was like, wow, this is really cool. People do this. You know, they're people get paid to be paleontologists like that. That was something that I battled a lot. Even when I got into college, I was like, you can't make a living at this, you know, <laughs> people don't actually do this. And so I went in to be like a high school biology teacher and it was the worst decision I ever made. Oh. And I took a like a physical sciences course. And I was like, oh, this is my language. These are my people. And I transferred into it. And the rest is history, basically. But yeah, Jurassic Park has always been there. And I think that even though I really liked it as a kid, I think I like it more now as an adult. Like I find myself watching it more now than I did when I was a kid. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And you, you made me think of Jurassic Park is such an interesting movie in that sense of like, inspiring people because yeah i mean it, it is interesting that, that this movie in particular has inspired uh, so many people to become paleontologists and it's like what other movies inspire people to do the job like what other movie shows the person doing their job in the movie yeah i don't know i i don't know maybe like the pandemic movies like contagion and oh yeah you know like so you have the the healthcare workers and the scientists and the epidemiologists epidemiologists trying to figure this out, you know, so you see like those type of people working. But yeah, there's not a lot of real science in science movies. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, like I said, and I identify with different characters now than I did. Obviously, when I was a kid, you immediately identify with the kids in Jurassic Park. Yeah. But now as an adult, you start to see like where Malcolm was coming from. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't even think I really comprehended what that because we're so... I mean, as kids, you're just like, you know, you've been taught that discovery and all the, you know, it's like, and then you learn, you know, you learn about like what colonialism is, but you don't really understand what it means until you're older. And then you're like, oh, you know, like, mm, maybe this isn't always such a great thing. <laughs> but going back to the other thing, too, that you made me think of is that like, you know, uh, I think we're probably around the same age and it's almost like it's hard to distinguish if you and, and I got the sense that, yeah, you were a dinosaur kid first that discovered Jurassic Park. But it's almost like sometimes those things are, are tied together. But it but it wasn't for you. No, I think I always had like a fascination with dinosaurs as soon as I figured out 
that they were a thing. Um, my dad had a small fossil collection from Whoa. the Midwest. And so uh, like brachiopods and bivalves and crinoids, things from the the Carboniferous of the mid-continent. And I thought they were the most fascinating things Ooh. that were in our house. I would drag out this box of fossils probably almost every other weekend and sort them and look at them and just be like, wow, these things lived... It, like so long ago, I can't even comprehend how long they lived, you know, and and my parents had like a natural history library. Basically, my dad was huge into collecting Nat Geo books and um, just just books on natural history, human evolution, our natural world. And so I would just just absorb everything about it. So I grew up in a very science fascinated household. None of my parents had degrees in science, but they were both very fascinated by it in the natural world. And so that's kind of how I got started. So with these books and my dad's fossil collection, and then Jurassic Park came out and I was like, oh, snap. <laughs> and, you know, and it was kind of one of those, okay, well, now I just have to learn how to spell paleontologist because that's what I'm going to be. <laughs> that's so, it's so funny. I feel like there's probably tons of kids growing up now with parents like your parents. When I think of First Fridays at, you know, natural history museums and mm -hmm. people who are into ologies and eons and like, you know, kids growing up now with a bunch of us like science fascinated nerds who, yeah, we're not scientists or anything, but we we're we're so fascinated by this stuff. That that that's so incredibly cool. I know. I I count myself incredibly lucky that I grew up like that, that I had, um, I didn't have to go to a library to check out a book on dinosaurs. I had like five of them just in my, <laughs> in the front room where all of the awesome books are. And actually, whenever I go back home, I, I don't get to go back home very often. My, my family lives in Kansas City. And so I do, I get those books out every once in a while and I just oh, flip yeah. through and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that picture and I remember this. And one of our, our human evolution books had a, a sheet of papyrus in it, like a Whoa. little sample of papyrus. And I remember taking it to school during like our Egyptian week or whatever and, yeah. and for show and tell and be like, this is what they wrote on, you know? And um, it was just, it was a great, I had a great childhood basically what I'm trying to say. <laughs> that is incredible. No, I mean, it's, and you, you touched on it briefly, but yeah, how, like, and I think there's, there's people listening who, you know, want to get into paleontology or, you know, science communication or anything like that. So like, but you didn't originally think, oh, I'm going to be, you're like, I'm going to be uh, the host of a, of a show on YouTube that, you know, <laughs> like, so you, but you, so you initially weren't going to go into paleontology. You kind of went like, I always am so curious how people, the nuts and bolts of like going from a dinosaur kid to actually doing it as a career. Right, right. Yeah. So I was, I was, uh, I was a hundred percent all through middle school, high school, you know, high school is a interesting time for <laughs> most people and, and I am not an exception to that rule. And so um, I kind of faltered there. I thought I was going to be a photographer for a while. And my dad was like, I ain't paying for art school. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, and so Sorry. I was like, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> and so I was like, well, OK. And um, I didn't get into the college that I wanted to. I had to go to a backup school, which actually turned out to be brilliant. And I'm absolutely just, I think, my lucky stars that I did not get into my first choice of school saved me a ton of money. And I got a great degree anyways. Um, but yeah, when I got into college again, I kind of went through this period of like paleontologists 
it like a paleontologist isn't a real profession. Like that's for the movies, you know, like people don't do this. I don't know where I got that idea in my head, but I mean, Jurassic Park makes it look pretty sexy. It does. It does. And like, I didn't think that I was going to get a book deal or a movie deal being a paleontologist because that's really the way you make some money in paleontology is kind of through the the publishing sector or the consultation sector like Jack Horner did. Um, and so I didn't consider myself the na- next Jack Horner. So next best thing, I guess, is being a biology teacher. And um, I really just did not like that program at all. And I was in one of the best teaching programs in the country. And I was just like, this is so weird. Like, you're not required to be like an expert in your field. Like 90% of the classes you take are how to teach, not to learn the subject that you want to teach. And I just thought it was completely backwards. And um, part of my degree was to take this intro to physical sciences class. And it was very early, probably freshman or sophomore year. And I took it. And like I said, I was just like, oh, yeah, it brought all this stuff up from my childhood. The the fact that I love rocks and I love fossil hunting and I love the mid-continent carboniferous fossils that you can find there. It's so easy. They're everywhere. They just erode out. It's amazing. Um, road cut geology. I was just like, duh, Callie, this, you do what you love. Do what you love. And there was no resistance after that. I was top of my class. I did internships. I was um, the assistant curator of our campus museum. And so I just like jumped in both feet and and the rest is basically history. Now, did I think that I was going to be on a YouTube channel? (laughs) Um, No, (laughs) I sure did not think that that was going to happen at all. Um, And that was kind of weird. I had already been working at the University of Montana for geez, almost 10 years by the time eons came around. And I was, I guess I was, quote unquote, discovered (laughs) at the Children's Museum here in Missoula giving an outreach talk. And one of the producers for SciShow that is produced by Complexly, who also produces eons, saw me and was like, hey, you should come be on um, SciShow talk show. And where where Hank Green interviews cool people, cool jobs. I was like, sweet, let's do it. And so it was like the longest talk show they've ever recorded. There was <laughs> there was no silence. There was no awkward silence. Me and Hank just like blah, 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 and chatted for like over an hour about fossils. I brought show and tell. Of course, you have to bring show and tell if you're a paleontologist. Yeah. And so uh, after that one, they were like, hey, you did really great. We have this idea for this new show. It's going to be kind of natural history, dinosaur based or something like that. Um, are you, you know, would you be interested in maybe being one of the hosts? And I was I was like, uh, sure. Um, and I had no idea the gravity of the situation. And so I did a couple of screen tests. They both came out really well. I I could be directed. I could perform on camera, which is shocking to me because I was never a theater kid. I never took theater. I was never in a play. I could do speeches in front of people, but I never had to act. And so um it was kind of I kind of amazed myself that I was able to to do well staring into a camera lens and not at a group of people. But I mean, it, it's um, it's hard sometimes to explain. I mean, I've done a few like how to podcasting kind of things. And it's like it, it's it's almost weird to like deconstruct what you do because you're so 
you know, you're in the mode of what you're doing and then to sort of have to explain it feels kind of strange sometimes. So it it, it really it is does. kind of like a cool, it really is like a talent to be able to explain it to people. Right, right. And that kind of rolls into Psycom too. So um, it actually took like a year to develop the show to get funding from PBS. Um, and I didn't actually think it was going to happen at this point. I had kind of written it off in my mind. And like I said, a year after, like they were like, yeah, let's do this. I got an email from Blake and he was like, like, we got funding. We start filming next week. And I was oh. like, oh, shit just got real. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, this is a real thing. Um, and I wasn't a big YouTuber before it either. Like, I would get on for DIYs and how to's, you know, like, how do I fix my computer when it's being a jerk? And, um, but like, I wasn't really into the, the edutainment world on YouTube yet. And so like, this was a whole, whole new thing. And I've met some very famous creators and I didn't know who they were. And I look <laughs> back at it and I'm like, Oh my God, you were such a doofus, Callie. Why didn't you do a little research? <laughs> you should have been fangirling. And instead you were just like, Oh yeah, that sounds cool. Nice to meet you. <laughs> it was a huge shock to go from, you know, little Missoula, Montana, talking to second and third graders to getting videos that have more than a million views, thinking about a million different people have seen me <laughs> on screen now. And so it's it is weird. It's very weird. Um, but I love it. I absolutely like it's the coolest thing that I've probably ever done now. I wrote about I got to write about some, you know, really, I mean, edutainment is a great word of like, things to do for the Natural History Museum of LA of like, I wrote a little blog for them of like things to check out. And I obviously recommended eons because it is oh. just like these, you know, it's what's the length of the episodes are so perfect because I feel like there's this like tendency to want to do like one minute facts or whatever, mm -hmm. um, or, you know, make a full length feature documentary, but it, it's, it, it's almost like, and, it, and it's funny because it's one of my questions in a second, but like, it feels like when you watch an Eons video, you are you are really learning about something in a meaningful way, but it's also short enough that I could, exp like, I basically, I mean, obviously we're not partying right now, out partying right now uh, mm, yeah. during the pandemic, but it's like, I feel like if I mention it, like something from an Eons video, I could theoretically, like, say everything from the video and, you know, like, oh, have you heard about, you know the the oh, the most recent one about the bloat, like the floating. Oh, the bloat and float. <laughs> yeah, it's like, that's like... You're not like if you were at a party and you're like, oh, let me tell you about this like really interesting science, like, you know, this fact I learned about uh, this dinosaur that like floated out to sea and then died. Like you could explain it like the the end's videos are just so well done where it's like you feel like you really learn something in a meaningful way, but you could still explain it to people that you if you wanted to share it out to people, which I do because I love talking about dinosaurs but oh well thanks <laughs> we try really hard it's been a learning curve to try to figure out like who is our audience like who who are we making these videos for because at first we actually had it skewed way younger um than we thought we were going to get and so our first couple of episodes in the the comments people were like why are you being so condescending why are you talking <laughs> down to us you know like we're not idiots we know what a dinosaur is type of thing we're like oh okay 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 our viewership are like 
educated paleo nerds. All right, let's let's <laughs> up it a little bit. And then we also discovered that the topics that we were trying to tackle could not be done in five minutes. There was no way. So when we first started our contract with PBS, we were going to do the majority of the episodes were going to be like five minutes. And then we would have a sprinkling of longer form episodes, maybe 10 minutes. And by season two, we were like, oh, no, we're like 10 to 15 minutes. And that's basically where it's going to stay um, nice. because we we literally can't get all of this information in a five minute episode. And so um, it's like like I said, it's been a learning curve, figuring out, you know, who our audience is and how to talk to them and then building our scripts around that and finding that like sweet spot of time that we're not taking up too much time for people. We're not just doing a list, you know, t- top five biggest dinosaurs of all time. You know, um, you'll you'll never get that from eons. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's been it's been it's been really neat. It's been really neat to, to learn this YouTube world and to really understand what it takes to make something thing like eons because it's not just like me turning on my laptop you know and and getting the camera going and like hey guys <laughs> it's me Callie let's talk about a cool dinosaur like it's a, a giant team of people like there's 10 to 15 people working on a single eons I mean, episode beautiful illustrations and infographics and things that are so that like again it's like coming from the podcast world it's like we have to you know have to try and explain everything uh, auditorily but mm-hmm. and and so you know that can be like a good discipline sometimes but then there's something about being able to complement you know the visuals and the audio and I mean all the illustrations are just so gorgeous yeah we we use a lot of different um illustrators well I guess we really only use about two or three now um, we had a little bit larger pool when we started and we've started working with fewer and fewer kind of getting the same feel and the same look for each yeah. of our episodes you know um, but our post-production team works miracles <laughs> I'll be reading a script because I fact check every script so basically every single word in a script I double check to make sure okay what we're saying is correct right and um, and then I, I'm, I'm thinking about like what are they going to do with this episode how are they even gonna make this like visually exciting and then i get the draft episode and it's just like amazing like how did you even do that seth ah! so like um seth has been a huge part of what makes eons look like eons and so he's done a phenomenal job with giving us our look and the feel um and our graphics and mark that does a lot of our animations they've they just knock it out of the park every single time even when i'm like i have my doubts <laughs> like how are we gonna make fermentation look cool oh we're gonna show a whole bunch of fermentation on screen you know so, yeah. like 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 I said it's it's really amazing what our team is able to accomplish that's so exciting and on that note I mean I always hate to ask like what are your favorite of this or whatever but I guess in that sense like what are the ones that you would tell people at a party like here's a video that I worked on this week like what are those eons videos that you have to tell people that you're working on or the ones that you 
you know, recommend the most often. Yeah, sometimes the ones that I like the most, our audience actually doesn't like the most. But so I kind of tell people to watch those to get our view counts up. <laughs> but um, I really like um, I like the ones that we don't shoot in studio. So we went to the Museum of the Rockies and interviewed um, Amy Atwater, their collections manager, and Ellen Therese Lamb, who is in charge of their uh, paleo histology lab. And that was so cool to talk to those women about their jobs in science, about what they do at the Museum of the Rockies. But they're kind of some of our lower viewed episodes. But I think they're great. And it shows kind of the different um, some different employment opportunities within the field of paleontology that's not the go out into the field in the desert and spend six weeks and get sunburnt and windburnt <laughs> and um, all of the other dirt in all of the areas, you know. And so I think that that one was great. I also love the one that we filmed at the Smithsonian. I mean, I, it was just amazing to get to go in the to the deep time hall before like the glass was up on the big dinosaur Ooh. exhibits. And our episode looks phenomenal it looks so pretty it's it's so great because there's no glare on any glass because there was no glass up you know oh my gosh i definitely um, like as somebody who obsessively visits naturalist museums in every city i'm in it's like there's so many photographs that are like this is just for me like this is not a good photo because i'm trying to shoot a ceratosaurus skull but it's just like all you know, it's just literally my phone, you know, in, in the right. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I always find myself with not enough time. And so I go through museums and I'm just taking pictures of all the labels. I was like, I'll read this on the plane yes. ride home. I don't have time now. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm so glad I'm, I I do that, too. And I'm OK, so good. Glad I'm not alone in that. Um, nope. it's, it, I'm glad you brought up um, collections because I wanted to kind of segue over to, to that aspect of your career. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to manage a collection and like what is that day to day like? Yeah. So I tell everybody like my Instagram handle, I'm fo a fossil librarian. So basically the things that you think about a book librarian doing for books, I do for fossils. So I keep them accessible. I keep them organized. I keep them safe and preserved for future generations, um, future generations of the public to enjoy them and future generations of scientists wanting to work on them. So a, a day in and day out, it's pretty basic. I go around, check to make sure display cases are OK, lights aren't out things haven't fallen off shelves that sort of thing Whoa. um the the normal boring uh maintenance stuff and since i work at a very small collection we we don't really have a museum um in the traditional sense we have display cases in a first floor atrium area so it's very high traffic well not high traffic anymore but it used to be high traffic and um so I, I double check that. Usually if you were at a bigger museum, you have exhibitors that do all that stuff. Um, and then collections managers are more focused on the specimens themselves. And so I supervise volunteers. I facilitate loans. So we send specimens from our collection all over the world wow. uh, to researchers. Yeah. So we're a research collection. There's not really a paleontology program anymore at the University of Montana. You can still get your paleo uh, fix from uh, Montana State University, but University of Montana, it's kind of it kind of died, and <laughs> it's it, it's it's okay. It's very sad, but it's okay because our 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 department went in a different direction, and so they felt that instead of trying to compete with 
MSU that has the Museum of the Rockies and they have Jack Horner. Well, Jack Horner emeritus now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like why why even compete with that? Like we should be going into um, hydrology and the bit more of the physical geologies, like um, being a licensed geologist or risk management or um, even the economic geologies, oil and gas and things like that. Oh, so no. so our department chose a financially safe direction <laughs> and kind of let paleo die. But they kept the collection, though, and they kept me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so I kind of just manage my little collection in the basement and make sure that it's always available for researchers. If anybody wants it, I'll send you anything you need um, because we want more publications written about our collection to show how active it's being used in research. We might not have any paleontologists on campus now, but there's a lot of paleontologists in the world. And we have a very wide ranging collection. It's very random. It's not like uh, our collection focuses on this from this time period. No, no, no. We have specimens representing over 20 different countries. Our collection spans over 2 billion years. And so it's it's there's a lot that you could find in the collection for a lot of different types of researchers. Um, right now, during COVID, I'm hanging out at home. I'm trying <laughs> to avoid campus. Um, just just less bodies on campus, the better. Yeah. And uh, so I'm doing a lot of database work right now, which is a little soul crushing, <laughs> but it needs to be done. So um Finding some collections that, you know, have just been hanging out, gathering dust since the 1980s and um, figuring out their locality details, getting all that information in the database and getting those specimens ready to curate when I'm ready to move back on campus and updating taxon names that were misspelled in our database. <laughs> and yeah, so it's like just a lot of laptop work, you know, yeah. so um yeah, well, so that's that's my job in a nutshell right now. It is wild to me to think that in science, it's like not only are you charged with, you know, doing new things or, or you know, kind of keeping up with the present, but then you're also supposed to go back and fix <laughs> things from the past. I feel like that's a lot of pressure to be like, all right, here's this collection from, you know, and, and also the idea that there are like just boxes of bones that nobody has looked at for decades and like. And I, know. I, I, I just can't imagine going back and being like, I don't have to go back and fix old podcasts from the past. Like, I'm just focusing right. on moving forward. Or, I mean, you are moving forward in a sense by, um, I mean, incredibly by, you know, fixing things. And, and But I just can't imagine that idea of having to not only focus on just moving forward, but also looking back and moving all that forward as well, too. Yeah, you know, and that's when I can't stress how important note taking is and labeling and having legible handwriting because, you know, some of these specimens were collected by people that aren't even alive anymore. It's wow. not like I can call them up on the phone and be like, hey, do you remember what day you collected these on? That would really help me out. Um, and so you have to use all of the tools at your disposal, which includes Google Maps, Google Earth, uh, the National Map Database. Uh, like I use so many different websites that help me like I, I feel like a detective trying yeah. to figure these out. Um, and so it, it is interesting and it makes me mad that they were never 
curated and dealt with when they were collected, you know, but um, every single museum in the world has this problem. They have a backlog of specimens. Curating specimens goes very slow. And especially nowadays, we want to digitize all the specimens. So at least getting a photo of it to put on your database so people can see what it looks like when they're searching your catalog or something like that. Oh, wow. So there's even like, a, you know, an extra step now. And if it's something really important, you might want to get it 3D scanned, maybe just mm-hmm. a surface scan, not something special like a CT scan, but um, and that takes even more. And then where does all that digital data live? And how do you make sure all that digital data is available for future generations if like PDFs go south? You know, yeah, so yeah. it's it's a really interesting field because you're constantly looking back, but you're constantly looking forward. It, it very, very rarely feels like you're working in the present. Like, how is my work today going to affect future researchers and how did future past researchers affect me now having yeah. to deal with this? <laughs> well, I feel like wasn't there an Eons video about the, the I mean, just anything that has to do with like classifications and stuff. I feel like there was either a cat one or a hyena one where like one was sitting in a box labeled as this. But then, you know, it, yeah, I mean, yeah. and it seems like there's an opportunity there for like new discoveries to be found, like right under your nose. Like it's all crazy. the time. All the time. Like I said, so our our collection is very wide ranging and I'm not really a specialist in anything. I know a little about a lot of things. And so like I could look at a tooth and be like, that's from a rodent. I can say that. But I couldn't tell you, is it from a mouse? Is it from a rat? Is it from a porcupine? Is it from a, you know, and so like I could label it rodent, but it would sit there for decades and decades and decades until some some mammologist came along and be like, well, actually, you know, and so there's so many times where yeah, you're you're completely right. Like stuff gets mislabeled, stuff gets pushed to the back of a drawer um, or gets put away incorrectly. So it's just sitting in the wrong drawer for a long time. So you may have had researchers coming to look at hyenas, but that one hyena skull was hanging out with the cats. And so nobody had ever seen it. Um, so that's a huge problem in collections of mislabeling um, things being put in the wrong place. And I don't think there's any there's. There's not really any way to deal with that other than getting more researchers in your collection and and having them check out a couple of other cases that aren't maybe in their specific range of of research. You know, like you might check out this other case. I saw some bigger skulls in there. It might be something (laughs) you might want to look at, you know, Um, and just encouraging people to come check out your collection. Because like I said, I can't be an expert on every single item that's in our collection, every single specimen. So it's 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 very interesting. Taxon Taxonomy is a beast in and of itself. (laughs) (laughs) And right now, our database doesn't automatically update taxonomy based on the newest research. So that falls on to me. Um, If I see a publication, I'm like, oh, man, that's been synonymized with this. Now I got to go through and update all these specimens, you know. Um, And so taxonomy is a never ending beast and it will never end. There will never be a one classification system that never changes again. And so um, that's a constant battle if you work in a collection with biological specimens is that you're always going to have to be on the lookout for synonymizing. and and changes in within a taxonomic tree and oh my gosh now the families are different and there's a new family and so wow yeah it's a it's a lot actually now that i think about it yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. It's well a lot. i mean like you know uh i mean again bringing up amy atwater and and again this i love that notion of of when you know the eons videos that i mean again it's like there is not one paleontologist job there's not one job like this there's so many and 
maybe and I think maybe sometimes that's a barrier for people because they just can't imagine what actual jobs there are. Because as a kid, mm-hmm. yeah, you're just, you know, as a kid, it was like, I want to be a marine biologist or a paleontologist. But you're like, but what do I actually do? You know, and it's cool that there are these other that there's all these other types of things that you can do that you can't even dream of. Yeah, I try to stress that a lot. And and I try to be inclusive as I can within paleontology as a field, because um, I mean, the if somebody's like, what does a paleontologist do? They go out into the desert and dig up bones. <laughs> well, that's just one tiny part of paleontology. Um, there are whole fields of paleontology that never go out into the field. They're um, statisticians. They're working on paleoecology and food webs, and all they need are collections that they can get stats from, basically. Um, There's people trying to figure out the inner workings of these animals. So doing like biomechanics studies and working on a computer, making digital models of these things. Uh, Digitization, like I mentioned earlier, is a huge thing. So we need people that understand how to scan, how to digitally render these specimens, how to make these files available and who who has access to these files. Um, And so there are so many fields in paleontology and so many ways to work in paleontology that you you would never have to go get dirty and hot in the field. <laughs> you would never have to do that. And so I try to try to tell people that, you know, like if you don't like to go outside, but you still want to work on dinosaurs, great. There's millions of specimens in collections all over the world just waiting for somebody to come hang out with them. <sighs> and so um, there's plenty of work to be done in a climate controlled environment <laughs> with good lighting. You hear that goth, uh, goth <laughs> dinosaur nerds? There's a yes. space for you too. There's a space for all of you. <laughs> yeah. And and then there's like the whole social media side on it. So now museums and collections everywhere want social media coordinators. They want to be present in all these different social media platforms. And so that's a whole nother way to still be involved in paleontology, but you're helping to um, express and convey the science that people are putting their blood, sweat, and tears in. It's really neat how how big of a field it actually is when you think about it. That's so cool. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Like, what are the biggest questions that people, like, I mean, obviously you said that your space doesn't necessarily have, like, people coming in day to day like a bigger museum, but... I guess what are maybe I guess to borrow a phrase from Ali Ward, uh, host of Ologies, what are what are some of the flim flam that you're you're often debunking about fossils or just your job in general? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. <laughs> 
So one of the biggest things like I find it has become a life's mission for me. And I don't know why I have chose this hill to die on, but this is going to be it. Um, It's a saber tooth cat. It's not a tiger. (laughs) It's not a tiger. You guys only tigers today. The orange stripy ones. They're great. Are tigers. Saber tooth cats are just that. They're just cats. They're in the felid family, but they're in a different subfamily than modern big cats. So we can't call them tigers. So like I literally have kids <laughs> say it out loud with me, saber tooth cat, over and over and over again. <laughs> You're training the so, next generation not to have th- this th- from our generation before we've been saying saber tooth tiger all the time. But I think it maybe it's because of Power Rangers. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how it started. I don't know. I think for a little while they might have thought that they were striped. Now they think they're more doppled. Um, but but yeah, it's 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 just a cat. You guys, it's not a tiger. I I work real hard at that all the time. <laughs> That's my main flim flam. Well, SJR listeners, you're you're put to you're on blast now. Nobody say saber tooth tiger. No, nope, I'll come and get you. I'll find you. I'll find your Instagram and be like, Actually, I'll be that person. Yes. I will. I'm, I'm not ashamed to do it. But yeah, that's that's one thing that I find myself coming to over and over and over again. It's not a tiger. <laughs> I feel like like a like a cranky old woman <laughs> raining on people's tiger parades. But that's that's just what it is. <laughs> Any megafauna, period, whether it be dinosaur or mammoth, just gets kind of like thrown into this dinosaur category. It was a big thing that lived in the past, so it must be a dinosaur. <laughs> um, and so that's sometimes I get that. Not like I said, not as much as the saber tooth um, cat deal, but sometimes, yeah, I get people calling all large megafauna dinosaurs. Interesting. So, yeah. Well, I mean, on that note, what are your favorite, or again, I I, I I mean, I like asking it because it you know gets good discussion, but at the same time, I don't want to put pressure on it have to, having to be the favorite. But I guess what are some dinosaurs that you love? And then also, what are some favorite prehistoric life that isn't a dinosaur? That you love? Ooh, yeah. Yeah. That I, like, I actually like that question even more because it doesn't pinpoint me so much. You know, I am going to be a basic, like a basic bitch right here <laughs> and just be like, triceratops. I just I love Triceratops. I it's so cool. It's like the rhinoceros of the Cretaceous. Um, it it was a herbivore, so it's not going to eat me if I happen <laughs> to time travel or something. Um, the the scene in Jurassic Park, you know, where Alan is laying on it and he's like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. You know, I just I like it gets me every time. Like I tear up almost every single time I watch that dang movie. <laughs> and so like one of the first dinosaur fossils I ever helped excavate was a triceratops. I mean, they're everywhere. I mean, nine times out of 10, if you go to eastern Montana, you're going to be working on a triceratops anyways. Um, wow. We have their full ontogenetic series. We know what they look like when they were freshly hatched to adults. And there's even some some issue with the Triceratops Taurosaurus thing. And I I don't even know where (laughs) I stand on that either. I kind of want us to do an Eons episode so I can like... Oh my god, I would love that. I know. It's it's on the Trello board for us. So (laughs) I hope we'll do a a Triceratops episode or the argument of Triceratops Taurosaurus. Like, what's going on there? Why do people even think this? And so, so for me... It, it's just an easy one to go to. Triceratops, I've worked on them. I've seen them. They seem to be amazing. I mean, and Sarah from Land Before Time. Uh, so I think that's really where my love of dinosaurs came oh, from, truthfully, was Land Before Time. Because that came out way before Jurassic Park. Um, and my dad was a huge Fantasia fan. And so there's that. Um, yeah. 
Oh, I can't remember the song that goes with oh, that. Yeah. There's so many things wrong. I'll give it. It came out in like 1954. We didn't know a lot of things. It's okay. Stegosaurus but, versus Tyrannosaurus. What's exactly. going on there? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could squint my eyes and be like, that's an Allosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> There's an extra finger there, maybe. You know, they maybe. probably got it wrong, you know. It's okay. It's 1954, you know. So I think it was probably, um, I really think it was Land Before Time. And I always like again kind of identified with sarah she was like so tough and so headstrong and a little stubborn and i was like you know that could be me that could be we could we could be sisters here um and so yeah i i always go back to triceratops now when it comes to the rest of the history of life on earth oh my gosh there are so many cool things out there. There's so many cool things. The the I was so excited to work on eons because I was like, we'll never run out of topics, period. Yeah. We have almost five billion years of Earth history to talk about. Like, how would you run out of anything? So let's see. Hmm. I've always been a fan of the sporiferid brachiopods. So the little brachiopods with the really long wings that kind of come out. Um, they're very delicate looking. Mm -hmm. And I grew up with them in Kansas. And, and so every time I see a sporiferid brachiopod, I'm like, hey, dude, you're cool. People might not think it, but I do. Um, I'm always an advocate for the invertebrates. Uh, megafauna is, is charismatic and whatever, but... All the stuff that lived in the Paleozoic was cool, too. Like trilobites. <laughs> they survived three, almost almost three mass extinctions. You know, that's pretty good. Um, they would probably still be around today had it not been for the Permian mass extinction. So those guys are cool. Um, all the armored sharks and fish and um, all the weirdos in the Eocene. If we go a little f way farther forward into the Cenozoic, uh, like the Eocene is probably one of my favorite, the Paleocene and Eocene, because like oh, wow. mammals just were weird, <laughs> just bizarro world at this really early radiation of the mammals after the Cretaceous extinction event. And you're just like, what is going on? You would you would go back in time and be like, yeah, that I mean, that kind of looks like a a, a a pig, sheep, cow, maybe, you know, like it's not like, yeah, sloth that looks bear. like a, yeah, a, a sloth bear, maybe. I don't know. Um, So you, you never like point at something and be like, that looks like a deer. It's always like that kind of looks like a mishmash of like five <laughs> different animals. <laughs> so. Yeah. It's like if you're drunk and maybe you're not wearing your glasses and it's like, I think that looks like a thing that I'm familiar with, but it's right. Not quite. Right. And then by the time you get to like the Oligocene stuff starts to look way more modern and you're like, oh. I can kind of see a horse there. I can see a camel. I could. These ungulates are starting to look like ungulates instead of these weird furry beasts from earlier. So I really like these kind of odd transitional periods where where things are just kind of experimenting and everything looks kind of weird and <laughs> and and it was like that everything got thrown into a pot, kind of mixed up, and then you just pull out traits from it, you know. So those are some of my my favorites it's everything i love everything <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i have to thank eons for really like giving me because i think triassic is kind of the redheaded stepchild of the the dinosaur eras yep. and mm -hmm. it's just like no i feel like nobody appreciates it as much as they do the jurassic and the cretaceous and yeah would, i mean personally i think J jurassic would benefit from adding a, a dinosaur or a creature from that era to kind of maybe even bring more attention to it but all the triassic videos you've done like are so cool. I mean, even the crocodiles that um, mm -hmm. that they have. Oh my gosh, I'm the crocodiles the with hooves. Yeah, with hooves. But then they also have like the fact that crocodiles have a unique ankle situation going oh, yeah. on. Like mm -hmm. 
like that stuff to me, like those are the videos that I was like recently like recommending to people because it's just like, how did we not? What is the, the Triassic is such a weird it's like I'm goth, but I'm also into country music like this. Th there's just <laughs> like you're saying, there, it's these tr moments of great diversity and transition where like nobody knows what they want to be. So they're going to try to be everything. Right, right. And you have s so many open niches to fill and you've only got a few survivors to fill those niches. And so you get things that are doing things that you wouldn't <laughs> normally be like, oh, yeah, that's totally normal for a croc to have long legs and gallop. What? <laughs> you know, and and to think that if it wasn't for the Triassic extinction event, we might not even have had Jurassic Park, you know, yeah, like it wouldn't have wow. been the same. Um, because it it like wiped out a lot of those archosaurs that that allowed dinosaurs to kind of take off and flourish and radiate during the Jurassic. And so, yeah, the Triassic is a weird one, too. I actually um, am oddly familiar with the Triassic, but not with the vertebrates. So one of the professors, the, the last paleontologist at the U of M, he was a late Triassic scleractinian coral expert. So scleractinian wow. corals, corals are the stony corals. They're still alive today. Um, and modern coral, the coral that we know and love today, basically got its start in the Triassic. Oh, wow. Well, at the end of the Triassic, there's that mass extinction event and it obliterates coral, like bad obliterates coral. But he was really interested in like what was happening right up to the end of the, of the extinction and then who were the survivors after that in the very early Jurassic. And so we have a huge collection. Probably our second largest collection is nothing but late Triassic coral from all over the world. So cool. All over the world. And so I'm pretty well versed in what's happening with coral at the end of the <laughs> Triassic. But but like on land, even our eons episodes, sometimes these eon episodes educate me too. I, I feel like I have a very wide understanding of the history of life. And every once in a while I get these scripts. I'm like, nah, really? <laughs> For real? How did I not know this? How did this slip by me? You know, and so I even learn some stuff sometimes. And those Triassic, like the Carnian Pluvial event, when it rained for two million years, I had yeah, no yeah. idea, no idea, <laughs> no idea that happened. So now I do. It's it's in it's in my history of life bank now. So, <laughs> so <laughs> thanks, cool. eons. It, it I find it hard pressed to. It's like it's almost strange that there hasn't been a better dinosaur movie than Jurassic Park since. Mm -hmm. Like what, what about that movie? Like somehow it, it just, it made it what it is. But, it, but my question to you is you're tasked with making a new dinosaur movie Ooh. and what creatures would you have it? Maybe what concepts, like things that Jurassic Park hasn't done yet. You know, my thing, it's like Jurassic Park is created by, you know, the dinosaurs are science, but it's like, there's also time track. Like if, if you were going to make your perfect dinosaur movie or, or perfect movie about the the past or any of those kind of concepts what would it be Ooh man that's a hard one oh my gosh because like in my mind jurassic park is like perfect i mean um i when back when i used to travel by airplane uh <laughs> i went from missoula to the midwest a lot or missoula to the east coast but i always stop over in minneapolis that's my favorite stopover in the midwest and from missoula to minneapolis or minneapolis to uh, Kansas City or to DC or something like that. It's about 
the time of Jurassic Park. So I okay. have Jurassic Park loaded on all of my devices at all times. And I feel like hot shit on the airplane <laughs> watching Jurassic Park. And I'm just like hoping people behind me are like, damn, girl, you're watching Jurassic Park. That's so cool. I'm I'm sure people do not think that. <laughs> but like in my mind, I don't even know what I could do better. I think like I also like time travel movies. I like to think about time travel. Like if we could go back and see something and do something and watch something happen, um, that would be super cool. And so like, I think if you could take like, like Doctor Who and mix it with Jurassic Park. So instead of like bringing dinosaurs to the present, we take scientists to the past to where like they're doing like legit biology on not artificially made dinosaurs like 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 or comparing it like ooh, like how well did we do yeah <laughs> did we get oh it right gosh. that's know? like a it's like a, a game show where they like take the jurassic park dinosaurs and they're like all right here's your velociraptor okay here's a real velociraptor holy shit like you guys got it all wrong <laughs> it's everything is wrong you you have the wrong genus in fact <laughs> completely wrong you know or something like that something where 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 real researchers are able to go back and actually observe these creatures in their natural habitat in their natural time um and, and to really see what life is like but but again like bringing dinosaurs into the 21st century is still pretty dang cool yeah. i mean i i i really like it i i i really like the Jurassic Park franchise and there's not really a movie that i don't like i know there's a lot of people that don't like the second one but i think the second one is fascinating like they they printed out the hyoid of a velociraptor to figure out what it sounds like like that's great <laughs> wait is that the third one that's the third one the third one yeah sorry the third one like everybody gives it a lot of crap because the velociraptor says his name in a dream <laughs> it's a dream you guys have you haven't you ever had some weird dreams where you're like dang brain what's going on you know um, i was gonna so, say that i'm sure you've dreamed about dinosaurs oh yeah i've dreamed about dinosaurs i dream about all sorts of stuff recently i've just been dreaming about numbers because i've been inputting so Whoa. much in the database and it's just not fun it's not fun wow um, and so, like, like I said, I, the only like complaint, I don't even feel like it's a complaint um, anymore with with the franchise is the very first Jurassic World movie. Um, and, and it's mostly a plot thing. I wish they would have basically told the same story as in the first Jurassic Park. So um, instead of the two adults pairing up and the kids pairing up like. Owen gets paired up with the two bitchy boys. You know, could you imagine <laughs> oh how God. funny That's the that would be? Description of those kids, <laughs> right? And so, like, if think about Owen being with those two boys, like the entire movie, like the comedic relief of them going back and forth, arguing with one another. You don't know me. You're not my dad. Blah 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 blah. You know, like I think that that would have been a way funnier story than like this weird forced relationship between the two adults you yeah. know it it felt like really fake it felt really forced it it didn't feel like they were supposed to end up together at the end and then they did and um and so that's the only thing that like bugs me about the franchise is that i wish they would have paired owen and the boys up in jurassic world because i i would have been way funnier i think <laughs> just way yeah, funnier yeah. you didn't have you just didn't have that comedic relief you know so for me, obviously, well, eons I discovered, I feel like I just discovered because of working on ologies. And so I'm constantly like, when I'm like looking up clips and things for that, I'm just, and I'm always wanting to learn a little bit more about what 
what Ali, like whatever, Ali, whoever Ali is interviewing. Mm-hmm. It was just that flood of like uh, YouTubing, like all these different science videos. And that's how I discovered uh, you. But in general, I feel like I discover a lot of scientists through Twitter and other social media these days. Mm-hmm. And I guess for you personally, does social media help your work at all? Or is it more of just get, like the science communication aspect of like getting your work out there and connecting with other scientists? You know, that's a really big question right now. That's actually kind of one of the hottest topics in science across the board in any ology, whether it's biology, geology, paleontology, whatever, is how much is science communication on social media affecting the science? Are we bringing more people into the field? Are we making it more inclusive? Is the hours and hours that you spend making a post about some bizarre creature in the ancient past actually doing anything? And so there's a whole bunch of people now trying to get some data on that, trying to get some stats to to be able to publish, like to be able to say um, all this effort and work that we're putting into SciComm social media, is it working? Are we affecting change? And so I think within the next five years, you're actually going to see a lot of big name publications doing more SciComm data analysis, like seeing if it's helping. I personally think it is helping a little bit. Um, it's getting more eyes on the field, uh, especially with the the last kind of like inclusion and diversity push that we, well, we're still in the midst of it right now, kind yeah. of a a cultural awakening type of thing, seeing that, yeah, anybody can be a scientist, no matter where you live, no matter your background, no matter your race, your gender, your ethnicity, your culture, like literally science is here for you and and come be part of this cool group um, that does cool things. And so I think that has helped a lot. Um, it's no longer old white dudes in lab coats. Yes. It's everybody under the sun doing a million and 40 different tasks all over the world. Um, and so I think that that has helped. Now, will we see the effects of that instantaneously? Probably not. Um, because all them Zen, like, what is it? Generation Z. Oh, now. Gen Z, yeah. Yeah, Gen Z. They got to get to college first, you know? So it's... So it's a it's a long game. You know, you're trying yeah. to you're trying to plant the seed of knowledge now that anybody can do science in any ology um, now in hopes that there's going to be this huge influx of kids going into sciences in the next five to 10 years. Um, so I think it's helping. Um but I don't have any data to support that <laughs> right right now, point, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I do get a lot of people that reach out to me that say they show my episodes or show eons in particular in their classrooms or parents that say their kids absolutely love it, you know. And so I do think that there will be more scientists someday. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I I want it to work. I want it to help. I want all of this effort that I put into Instagram to have some benefit somewhere. Yeah. Um, But even if one person, if one person goes into paleontology because they stumbled across my Instagram, I think that that's a win. Yeah. That's a win right there. Oh, no, I think so, too. Yeah. And I think for me personally, it feels like it's been my uh, like my like the the daily joy of (laughs) going on to Twitter and stuff like that has been made much better when I'm, you know, following Aaron McGee and playing Find That Lizard or playing right. uh, uh, Guess the Skull. Guess like, the Skull, like yeah. That stuff, it's like they, they like, obviously that's separate from their work, but it, in a way, but it, 
I feel like I, I wonder if that stuff is helping because it's just making science as fun as it actually is and not, you know, for people who might not, you know, have those misconceptions or think that it's, yeah, again, just this boring old white guy thing. Like, no, this is, this is exciting. This is fun. It like, you know, it's fun for me, I should say. And I think it's fun for a lot of people, you know, it is, it is. It's fun for a lot of people. A lot of people like, like games and to play and to laugh and to, and to have joy, you know, and to show that science is endless joy, no matter how you do it. You know, you, you may find joy in your work personally. You may find joy in telling your work to uh, uh, telling people about your work. You may have fun and find joy into just making little games like find the lizard or guess the skull or crow or no crow. And like, there's, there's so many good accounts out there now. And I, I find that my my social media is a much more enjoyable place and a much safer place now. Like I have I've gotten rid of accounts that I don't really care about and um, just kind of purged it to where I've made my feed incredibly positive. And I think that really helps. Um, and so if you find what you like, just man, just dive into it, you know, <laughs> and my feed is like 99% science and a couple of like vintage fashion pages nice. <laughs> you know and and I, I got a couple of uh, history accounts and a couple of salvaging accounts where they go out and find old artifacts and stuff and so cool. like I just really like to to see science to see what other people are doing see what other fields are doing yeah. I can't go back in time and become all of the ologies that I wanted to become you know I was really close to being a gemologist I was really close to being a glaciologist I was really close oh, cool. to becoming a volcanologist you know <laughs> I can't I can't do them all which is really sad <laughs> And so I can live vicariously through all these other people doing all these other cool sciences that I just don't have the bandwidth to go back to school and become one, you know? So um, I love it, too. I, I love I love how positive you can make social media. Obviously, if you I don't get into Twitter too much because I'm. I just I am not like quippy enough. I don't know. I just I speak in paragraphs, not in sentences. And so <laughs> yeah, every, everyone has their own has their own language almost in a way. Right, right. And so I find it's best for me to be able to write out a f- stupid long post that I'm sure nobody reads about <laughs> some random fossil, you know, but paleontology is lucky. A lot of the natural sciences are lucky is that they're very photogenic. And so they transfer well to an image platform like Instagram um, or Flickr back in the day. Yeah. But um, but yeah, so like some sciences are just better adept at being on certain types of platforms, I think. And paleontology is one that's really good for Instagram because like, how cool is a T-Rex skull? I mean, yeah. it's way less cool if I have to describe it to you in <laughs> words you know, like, than just showing you a picture. <laughs> Well, this has been so wonderful, Callie. I just have one last question that I feel like is goes directly into, you know, we've been, this is, this is a smoother transition, although I'm not making it a smoother transition, but um, I mean, what advice would you give to anyone who wants to get into paleontology or, or managing collections in 2020? 
to get into paleontology, it's it's pretty it's pretty easy depending on where you live. Um, the best thing to do is just to start to get into the community, whether you're getting into community uh, via social media, starting to make connections there with other paleontologists. With um, I mean, there's a lot of professors on Instagram or Twitter just making these contacts and 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 seeing what's happening in the field, seeing where the hot spots are, seeing um, where the next where the future of paleontology is going. That's a huge help right there for you to kind of give you an idea um, of where the funding is going to be, which is very important in all of the sciences. Uh, the other thing I would tell you is to volunteer. If you do have a close natural history museum or even a history mu museum, just like a cultural history museum, a lot of times if they're small enough, they actually have paleontology collections that they don't know what to do with because oh, they're not paleontologists. So I find this a lot, even um, in rural eastern Montana, most of their history, like history of the area museums, have a paleontology collection and they need help. They need somebody to sit down and sort it and identify it or do their best with it, you know. Um, even make a little display about it because the the ancient history of an area is just as, as important as the human history of the area. Um, so you could volunteer to help out there. If you have a giant museum like the Smithsonian is in your backyard, become a volunteer. Uh, start to start to really get into the field that way. Um, once you get into school, get really into biology and geology. So paleontology is a marriage between two sciences, geology and biology. So you have to understand the rocks to know where to find the fossils, and you have to understand biology to interpret those fossils. So um, you really need to have a, a good understanding of both of those fields. Um, I always tell people to get internships if they're in college. If you're in college, try to get a summer internship. There's lots of them that are paid all over the country um, in paleontology specifically. Cool. Uh, so there's lots of opportunities for you out there. And that's going to give you a really good idea of what paleontology is all about is if you get an internship. Get comfortable. If This might be something for you, might not be something for you, um, but getting comfortable talking in front of people. Someday you will probably have to give a talk at a conference. And so if if you're better at giving a lecture or, or um, talking about your science and you can make fun pop science, sci, uh, jokes and, and make it fun, you're going to become a memory in somebody's head. Did you see that person? That was so funny. They were so good. They were so entertaining, you know, and then that brings more focus onto your research as well. So getting comfortable talking in front of people, being a tour guide, basically, um, if you have a, of a, a chance to become a tour guide somewhere. Um, these are all really great ways to get into paleontology. Social media in particular, I, I always like to say to people that it's okay if you're not making eons quality videos. I'm very lucky. I work with a massive team of people that put eons together. I am not a one woman show. Like I said, 10 to 15 people make an eons episode. And so don't get discouraged by that. You know, make upgrades when you can talk about things that you like blog, take photos. There's a lot of ways to be in science communication and paleontology without 
being the scientist without being the person on screen if you're uncomfortable with being on screen we need writers we need editors we need illustrators we need animators we need all of these people make science communication possible and so play to your strengths um don't try to reinvent the wheel and do something that you're not comfortable with and also don't think that what you're making isn't as good um, because it doesn't look like eons and so you have a lot more flexibility than we do as a channel and so you could talk about whatever you wanted Versus us. We are very specific with our episodes and they need to fit a certain criteria. Um, so so go get it. Do do your thing. Start a blog. Just be in the community, I think, is the best way because that's going to make all your connections. That's going to show you what you're most interested in. And so you can be more efficient when you get to university and actually go the path that you want instead of being like me and jumping around into department to department <laughs> before you finally figure out that, duh, you were supposed to be in geology this whole time. So that's, that's my, that's my advice. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's something to be said that the, one of the coolest, I think like psychom or social media science things to come out in the last six months has been Jada Alcock's animal facts on TikTok, And they are just <laughs> the coolest, most fun thing. And it's like, yeah, I, I love that. Just the idea of, yeah, I mean, if you're talking about what you love, people are going to gravitate towards you, I think. Yeah, be enthusiastic. If you're on camera, be enthusiastic. Uh, that's probably the number one feedback that I get whenever I do outreach events or podcasts or whatever. People come up to me afterwards and they say, I could feel your enthusiasm. I can tell how much you love your field and it's contagious. You made me excited about it. Um, and so really let your freak flag fly when you, <laughs> yes. when you yes. when, like get into it. Be excited. Like uh, every time somebody asks me about ancient life, you know, I'm just like, yes. Well, oh my God, I get to nerd out so hard. Like, how long do you have? Do you have like an hour, a day, a week? Like, I can go on forever, it feels like. And so, um, yeah, be enthusiastic. Enjoy what you do. Um, and that will come across to people and you will you will infect people with your enthusiasm <laughs> as well. <laughs> well, Callie, this has been so special and I'm so honored to have ch chatted with you today. Where can people obviously... They can check out Eons, but obviously social media, where can they follow you? Let's see. Uh, you can find me. I am I basically live on Instagram at fossil underscore librarian. You can find me there. Um, I have a Twitter account. It's super inactive. Every once in a while, I retweet something randomly, but it's it's also fossil librarian. Go check out Eons, youtube.com slash Eons. It's such an easy handle. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That <laughs> um, it was so easy. Uh, definitely subscribe to us there. Let's see, where else can you find me? What else is coming up? Let's see. Ooh, things that are coming up, not necessarily next month, but in October is National Fossil Day. Oh, wow. So yeah, so October 14th is National Fossil Day. But Eons, I'll let you know that Eons is trying to plan something awesome for that day. Yeah, keep your ear to the ground, but... Yeah, this has been so great. Thank you for having me. Ah, I, was, I feel so special that I've I finally have made it. I've got on Sea Jurassic, uh, right? <laughs> no, no, this has been such an honor. Thank you. Thank you. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 